Welcome to the GeoMob Podcast, where we discuss geo-innovation in any and all forms, be it for fun or profit. And welcome to another GeoMob Podcast. This afternoon, I'm talking to my friend, Denise McKenzie, who is an international geospatial policy and strategy professional. Uh, That's quite a mouthful, Denise. She specializes in community building and public-private partnerships. Currently, she's the co-director of the Benchmark Initiative, working through Ordnance Survey's Geovation Accelerator and the chair of the AGI. And she's also a member of the steering committee for the Women in Geospatial Group. That's quite a lot of hats that you're wearing at the same time, Denise. Welcome to the GMOG podcast. Thank you very much, Dave. I'm glad to be here. Uh, we're delighted to have you. I nearly called you my old friend, but then I realized that um, that might be considered ageist. And given that we're going to be talking about women in geospatial, I didn't want to start off by being ageist in geospatial. Denise, you've had quite a long career in geo, starting back home in Australia, and that somehow brought you to the UK via your international role with the OGC. And more recently, you've been running your own consultancy, and you're a co-director of the Benchmark Institute. How did that journey start out? Do you know what? If I look back at my career, it's a bunch of moments of, of great happenstance where an opportunity has been in front of me, and I've thought, you know, that sounds interesting. I'll go and try that. So, you know, that, that big mouthful of what I do and sort of the policy part in there. So to be totally upfront, I have no formal, you know, university qualifications in geospatial at all. Uh, I have an undergraduate degree in public policy and international politics. And I kind of fell into the world of geospatial back in the early 2000s when I was asked to go and talk to a then acting director of a new area called Land Information Group. And he spoke to me for probably a good 45 minutes about this incredible world of mapping, all about, you know, amazing things you can do with Earth observations, all of the incredible things you can do if you understand more about the world and you can collect location data. And I think at the end of it, I turned around to him and I said, well, you know, it all sounds really fascinating, but does it come with a dictionary so that I can actually understand a lot of the terms he'd used? (laughs) And you know, that, that was really the beginnings of what was uh, 12 years that I spent working with Bruce Thompson uh, down in the state of Victoria. And a lot of my role in that was to try and take what was an amazingly rich and powerful geospatial tool and to, to be able to explain it to people like ministers, to be able to explain it to people outside of the realm of people who are in the geospatial community. And we often talked about the fact that within government, Uh, Less than 1% typically of the people working in government had access to geospatial resources to be able to make their decisions. And so what we wanted to be able to do was to say, okay, well, how do you make that 95% of the the government staff that can actually access these resources for good decisions? So that was kind of a lot of what I did there. You know, that segued into OGC through when we started doing some work on open standards and I did a couple of projects where we were very early stages starting to look at how you did geospatial on the web. I started connecting with OGC at that point and, you know, eventually a role came up and I I spent sort of about six and a half years with OGC as their head of outreach and communication 
which was an uh, amazing role. Like it was really an incredible, very busy one, often, you know, dashing from one country to the next. But, you know, an incredible one that enabled me to see the variety of what geospatial is across the world and what it does. So last year, left OGC. Uh, and as I said, you know, as you said, I'm now doing a bit of consulting work. And that, I guess, again, branched into something that I wasn't specifically looking for, but popped up as an opportunity, which is the benchmark initiative. So that's really looking now at location data ethics at this point. But it was another one of those great opportunities. I think Alex Rottersley rang me and he said, Denise, you know, I've got this project. Uh, would, you, would you come in and have a chat about it? And I think the rest has sort of been a bit of history there. That's amazing. So you moved from... Australia to the UK and somehow landed in Winchester. Yeah. Do you know, that was, it was a totally geospatial exercise to do that, really. So (laughs) (laughs) picture this, it was at the end of 2012, I had, my eldest child was five and my younger one was three. And I had, you know, sensibly or, you know, insanely decided to take an international job that required us moving as an entire family to the other side of the planet. And so it had kind of come December, I'd already started the role from Melbourne, and we needed to pick somewhere to live in England. Now, I'd visited England, I think, once or twice before that. So my geography understanding was not huge. And I turned to my husband and said, you know, well, you know, where do you want to live? Because I can work from home, so I don't need to be near an office. And his response to me was, anywhere but London. And I went, ah, okay, well, that means a lot of the country. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) So I literally started drawing circles and creating sort of geofenced areas. So I thought, well, I need to get near, I need to be no, no more than about an hour's drive from Heathrow so that I can catch planes places. I looked up where the OGC members were, like Ordnance Survey and, and people like the Met Office and, and so forth that I know were sort of some of the major members that I'd need to be interacting with. And literally hired a car from Heathrow and drove down the M3. <laughs> so kind of went, spent 12 days checking out Places like Guildford and Basingstoke uh, and Farnham, uh, all along these different places. And I landed in Winchester with about three days to go of my trip to find a house. And it was Christmas, December, there'd been a dusting of snow, the Christmas market was on and, you know, it did its marketing job very well on me and I sort of fell in love with the town. Perfect, uh, I'm really happy to here now for, for ooh, we're almost over seven years now of living in Winchester. It's always fascinating to understand people's journeys to their jobs and their locations, you know. I mean, and it's interesting, I think, that so many of us didn't start out in geo and somehow we stumbled into it, you know. Um, I mean, 20 years ago, or a bit more now, somebody said to me, why don't you come and talk to me about a project that I've got on? And that was the beginning of GDC and me joining that company 22 years ago now. And um, the rest for me has also been history, you know, no history of geo, no, no training in it at all. And yet it's a, a very welcoming place for a lot of us. So tell me about the Benchmark Initiative, because that's what we're really here to talk about, I think. And it's, it's a I've been looking at it. It's really fascinating what they're doing. So start by telling me what the initiative is and what yeah. you're doing there. So give you a bit of background then. So about middle of last year, the media network 
funded two pieces of pro two pieces of work really that was looking at trying to to surface and discuss the ethical issues and implications of using location data. So one of those was in the United States with the Ethical Geo, which is being run by the American Geographic Society, and they ran a sort of competition, if you like, for for fellows where they asked people to create videos that that sort of explained. What they, what they thought the issues were and projects that they felt could address some of the ethical issues there. Benchmark was funded a little while later. Uh, and I guess the remit that we really had was to look at the issues in a real world context. You know, what were the problems that people were experiencing, ethical problems they were experiencing in trying to use location data at the moment? You know, what were some of the unintended consequences that had appeared out of location data projects? You know, and, and could could we surface some conversation here about how you would address those? Now, it's fair to say when we started the project, I don't think any of us could have forecast that suddenly we'd be in a lockdown situation. No. <laughs> We're looking at tracing apps and so forth. So, you know, we started out originally with two parts to the program. It was supposed to be a series of in-person kind of almost fireside chat style things where we would pick some ethical issues and really kind of debate them in the room. And the second part of it was to have an entrepreneur program, which that part is still running and we have four entrepreneurs that are working with us. And, and each one of those entrepreneurs that really have come at the, the conversation of ethical geo, you know, ethical geo situations in, in different ways. So we've got one that's looking at sort of an educative game that tries to explain to people more about what they should understand about their location privacy. One's looking at development data and how you would help a decision maker understand the ethical issues related to the data that they're looking at and whether it's fit for the purpose that they should be making decisions on. One's looking at mobility data. Uh, we've just got a brand new one that's coming in at the moment that's really looking at an open source and repeatable methodology for how you would protect location privacy uh, in some of the work that's there too. So they're, they're really different, but they're, they're covering a nice broad spectrum of things there. So kind of fast forward into our wonderful lockdown scenario here. And uh, my co-director, Ben, and I suddenly had to move all of our in-person conversations into a online situation. And that's where recently people may have seen that we've had one chaired by Hannah Fry and Zoe Trevery as well from Reuters. And we've, we've really switched focus, I guess, a bit to talk about the issues that are now appearing front page. So when we started this, you know, concepts of ethical implications of geospatial was a bit maybe niche, a bit fringe for a lot of people's thinking. You know, interesting, but perhaps not kind of right front and centre. No. What the tracing apps conversation has done, though, is suddenly put the conversation about, you know, well, what is responsible and ethical use of my location data in situations up right on the front page of The Guardian. So we're now in a, in a much more different public environment and debate. And, you know, and even more recently, we're now looking in the US at questions of how law enforcement are using geofencing uh, in relation to some of the protests for the Black Lives Matter protests that have been happening. So this is, it's bubbling up kind of all around the world at the moment. And the the piece of work that's really been born out of that is now a thing called the Locust Charter. And what the Locust Charter is, is is kind of a response to to a learning we had from practitioners. What, what I've seen is that in general, people who work with location data, geospatial people, generally really want to do the right thing. They really want their location data work to be meaningful. They want it to be have a positive effect on the world. 
But when it comes to the ethical implications, a lot of them look at you a bit and go, I want to do the right thing, but I'm not 100% sure what that is. And there's no guidebook for me to follow, to kind of know the questions that I should be asking to make sure that I don't do harm in what I'm doing. So the Locust Charter and what's also shaping up to be a bit of a framework now is trying to tackle that problem. You know, how do we real world assist practitioners to be transparent in the decisions that they're making to communicate that well either to data you know data owners of of people that they've collected data from or to their sponsors at the end of the project when they're delivering their solution or just to communicate to the general public and to kind of illustrate what i mean here it really came home to me in the hannah fry panel that was a few weeks ago and one of her last questions to this great set of experts that we had on this panel and they've been talking about the UK tracing app you know she said to them all will you download the app when it comes out and you kind of watched all of them you know shuffle a little in their seats and generally the answer was neither yes or no it was I don't know because I don't have enough of the right information to make that call yet and so I think what we're trying to tackle now in the program is okay well how How do you give the communication tools for a government or for an organisation to be able to be transparent about the decisions they've made, you know, what they're doing with the data in such a way that the public can understand it and then make an informed choice whether they would download the app or not or whether they would access that service or not. So it's trying to demystify it a little bit would be... I think you've got a big challenge there because... A conversation, I mean, what you described was a conversation amongst some very well-informed people. Yeah. And they were still uncertain. When we take this to our parents' generation or to a a less digitally literate generation, that conversation is incredibly difficult to explain. And I suspect a lot of it ends up being do we trust the organization that nominally appears to be gathering this data? I think certainly in the COVID situation, a lot of us probably are more inclined to download an app and provide data to that app at the moment than we would be in a non-emergency situation. I have a fear, though, that every time we talk about privacy and we talk about what GCHQ has been doing, you know, it's all this same, it all sort of overlaps this area of what are people doing with our data, with our conversations and everything. And then somebody will chirp up with, well, if you're not doing anything wrong, you've not got anything to be afraid of. You know, we've heard that a million times. And of course, I think the problem is that we're giving data to organizations and we don't know what, who will be the successor to those organizations. You know, we might consider this government to be benign. The next government we might consider not to be so benign or, you know, people will change their opinion about, about the organizations they give data to. And there's no way of getting your data back once you've given it, is there? No. Well, yes and no. And I think this is, this is one of the really interesting things that we've had surface in all of our conversations here is that actually perhaps being responsible in the design of your you know location service is actually that you do have to have a way for people to be able to to, you know delete their data or have it you know get it back as so to speak 
within this. Perhaps that's actually part of the regulation that is required in the long term. And so I think with Benchmark, what, what I think is appearing really is that it, it, this is not certainly not going to be one document. You know, there's going to be multiple things that are going to shake out of this. And I think some of it is going to be probably a bit complicated, but we're really hopeful that some of it will, will help simplify. So actually for some of those older generations, it could be that actually you know, what gets designed is more of a rating system, perhaps, so that you can have greater trust uh, to understand the project. You know, is there a way of almost having a transparency rating here uh, in the same way that we might go to which.com, you know, .co.uk to, to get an assessment uh, of whether the, the, you know, headphones or fridge I'm looking at is, is good and has a review. Could we yeah. do the same thing almost with, with services like this? so that they actually do have some sort of independent review that we trust within that. So I, I think that there are things that perhaps we can help cause people to think about in the beginning of their projects, which, you know, takes into account some of those things like, well, cast your eye into the future. What do you think might happen with, with the data that you've collected in 10 years' time? You know, could it be used in bad ways? What are the safeguards you could put in place potentially to stop that from happening? Okay, so I think that's... it's trying to cause a bit of thinking difference perhaps, in, than right. what we otherwise would have done. And have you got any of the obvious big players like the Googles, Apples, Facebooks engaged with you? Yes, I, I, I won't name specifics, but certainly we have got some of the big organisations that play with us. We've certainly got some of the, the large NGOs in the world too that use a lot of location data as well. And we're beginning to talk with organisations like the UN and some of the agencies there as well right. at the moment. But I think before we got too heavily gauged in that dialogue, what we have been engaging with more, I guess, is is kind of the practitioner level people. Because at the end of the day, you, you know, I think one of the, the, the challenges with the ethics space is it's, it's very easy to be high level and esoteric about what good is. It's often quite difficult to translate that into something that is actionable and practical for people at a practitioner level. So we've, we've spent a bit of time, quite a bit of time in the last few weeks really talking to people more at the practitioner level to try and grasp the areas that they're really having challenge with to make sure that what we're designing is going to be something that's going to help them uh, in the long run. We, you know, we want to be able to be positively helpful through the process of what we're doing as well as hopefully affect the big, the big conversation as well. You almost want sort of a, a location experience extension to the GDPR, don't you? Yeah, and I think so possibly... If you, so if you start to collect location data for whatever reason, you sort of, you need a, check, a checklist almost that people can go through and think, why am I collecting this data? How long am I going to keep it for? What am I going to do with it? How am I going to enable people to unsubscribe from giving yep. me this data? How am I going to enable people to get me to delete all of their data? And, you know, it, it, you need something that's a sort of a relatively simple, you know, six point, ten point checklist that uh, a developer or a practitioner could look at and run through before they started designing a service. Or it sounds to me like that's what would be helpful. And that's, that's a pretty consistent feedback that we've had from people that we've spoken to, actually, Stephen. So definitely something we're in the looking at how we do. We've also had one organisation that, that described it to us as well of, of being almost like a transparency register that went with their platform or project so that sort of for each major phase they went through, 
they want kind of an easy template that they can fill out and say, well, here, here is the set of decisions that we made, you know, and answers to all of those questions for each phase we've been through. So when someone comes back and asks us to do something new and different, this is the next sort of set of answers, but it would all kind of keep rolling together. So you could go back and then have a look at the history of all the decisions that were made throughout the, the life cycle of that particular service. Well, I certainly think that uh, we'd have been a hell of a lot better off with this track and trace application if we'd have had this locust charter in place a year or so ago. Yeah, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing, Stephen. Yep. <laughs> hindsight's a wonderful thing, but the least that we can do is to learn from the challenges that the government got. And I'm not talking about the technical challenges, you know, that I mean they're a completely separate thing, but the very the whole issue of what data you collect to track an epidemic and under what conditions you collect that data would apply regardless of the technology they were using. Exactly. You know, you could whether it's centralized or decentralized, blah blah is irrelevant. You know, I mean it's the, the location ethics around this. Well, and the data ethics in general are just things that we don't have a framework for at the moment, and that's a shame. I'm looking forward to seeing... So when does the Locust Charter... When do you think you'll have a draft for discussion or something? I'm really hoping that we will have a draft out for public feedback and contribution into by the beginning of the of, of August at this stage. So we're at the moment doing a series of workshops in different parts of the world because one of the things that we, we wanted to ensure is that the language that we use resonates with people globally. And, you know, we don't want this to be just a, a UK thing or a US thing. We want this to be applicable to practitioners worldwide. So I, I guess to, to any listeners here, if, if the conversation you've just heard really sparks your interest and you think you'd like to be involved in one of our writing workshops, you know, I'll, I'll plug here and say do get in contact. Uh, more than happy to add people to, to workshops to get their feedback into it at this stage as well. And we'll put some contact details or a link in the show notes when we publish this podcast, Denise, Brilliant. so that uh, people can find it there as well. So let's just move on a bit from this high-level stuff that you've been doing with the Benchmark Initiative, because at the same time, last year, was it last year or the beginning of this year that you became chair of the AGI? Uh, it was beginning of this year. Would you believe I also did it crazily while I was in Melbourne on a teleconference? It was like 2 a.m. in the morning when I got voted in as the chair. Congratulations. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure. I say congratulations, but uh, I don't know whether it's a poison chalice, that one. I've lost touch with the AGI over the last few years. I used to be on the council and the executive and ran loads of events for them, but I've lost touch. and. I must admit that I've had the feeling that it was a sort of an aging organization of sort of GIS geeks that was increasingly irrelevant. But I'm sure, knowing you, Denise, that you've got a vision for the AGI. So convince me that I ought to be coming back. Ah, well, hopefully I'll convince you. Look, to be, to be fair, I think your experience of the AGI at, very, at various points is probably not not so uncommon for some people within the UK. In terms of its relevance now, so I got involved with AGI Council a couple of years ago and, you know, it probably took me a little while and I think AGI itself as an organisation has gone through in the last probably two years of it a bit of a reflection as to exactly what its relevance is. You know, where does it fit now that we've got a geospatial commission, 
We've got things like the Knowledge Transfer Networks, Geospatial Information, SIG. You know, you've got RGS. You know, what, what, what's, what was the niche or the role, if you like, that AGI was playing? And I think actually one of the things that we've seen an influx of in the last two years in particular, and perhaps this has been catalyst somewhat by having a geospatial commission, is organisations, particularly from perhaps outside of traditional geospatial spaces, being more interested in it and trying to find out more about it. Interestingly, one of the biggest parts of what AGI does now is looks at what a geospatial career is and how you might sort of segue into it. Our early careers network no longer focuses just on the early stage after a university degree, although that's still a big part of what we what we look at. We also look at that journey of people coming in from different other different roles that might not have been geospatial before, but now find themselves working within the geospatial community as well. So we, we changed the mission for AGI earlier this year and it's got two kind of really important components to it. One is that what AGI sees its role as being is the organisation that helps ensure the geospatial community of the UK thrives. You know, we, we're not a lobbying organisation, but what we are is a connecting organisation. So we're about helping the community build good partnerships. We're about helping see how, you know, we can help connect perhaps what the government's looking at doing with the reality of what the, the private sector is experiencing, fostering conversation and dialogue between the two to help make sure that, the, you know, the policy is well informed. You know, recent examples of that are that we've been working between our membership and the Geospatial Commission on things like the skills study and the market study. And so I think, you know, we're really about trying to ensure that our members are well connected. If you go back and talk to people of their positive experiences with AGI, often they're a reflection on networking opportunities uh, and how they've used their AGI membership to network with others uh, and to sort of build either their career or the business work that they're doing in that space. The second part of the mission that we added is the, the tail end of it, which really talks about working towards a sustainable future. And this has a this is a really multifaceted thing. On face value, it might look like we you know we're really just talking about things like sustainable development goals and environment, which we are to a degree. You know, you were, Geocom last year was focused on mm. things like net zero and sort of tangibly looking at how geospatial needs to play a role in some of the very very big challenges that our globe is facing at the moment. And you know, I think as a set of practitioners, we have a real responsibility to look at how we use our skills to do that. But it was also looking at how we ensure a sustainable future for our community. I think one of the the really interesting things about geospatial at the moment is sort of that it's really being burst out of its geospatial bubble as such. You know, I think traditionally over the 20 years I've worked in the community, Many of us know each other, particularly, you know, even globally, you know, you kind of know who the geospatial people are. Um, yep. But the, the last five years in particular, you know, you've seen a huge influx of new players into this space that are using location data in the most fascinating and interesting ways. And I think what we want to be able to ensure we do is support those people and those organisations that have, have been our traditional core of geospatial to connect with and share the expertise and the capabilities with this sort of new world of organisations that are now looking to use location data uh, and ensure that they can evolve and transition so that there's a sustainable future for our geospatial community. 
Uh, so I guess that's that's really what I see AGI as doing. And I think that's one of the reasons why I agreed to take on the chair role is that it really felt that despite the having a geospatial commission, an RGS, a KTN, there, there wasn't really any other organisation that was really looking at that ecosystem in that way and sort of ensuring that that connected and sustainable future for it all. So that's my kind of AGI, AGI pitch. <laughs> Good pitch. Good pitch. And is membership starting to grow? Yeah. Yeah, actually. It, it's had a quite pleasant effect. We were very worried for a while there. I think that COVID was going to, you know, do some, do some damage there. But actually, no, it's, I'll, I'll be quietly confident that it's it's definitely not regressing and it's it's looking a bit positive at the moment. So I think that's really exciting. And I, I do have to certainly plug our Early Careers Network is just doing such an amazing job at the moment in putting their events together and doing so many amazing activities to, to help support people in their career, which I think just given the stage we're at with looking at people in furlough and some people potentially losing their roles because businesses can't afford it. I really see that as an important benefit that we can offer people at the moment. And, you know, one of the, the longstanding elements of AGI is that we've always offered free membership to anybody that's unemployed so that they can still continue to, to collect CBD points. They can still continue to develop their skills. Oh, well, if if you're offering free membership to the unemployed, maybe I qualify. <laughs> 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 now, I think that's a fantastic thing that the AGI does. And I absolutely, at this moment, there are going to be people who are losing their jobs. And if the AGI can help them, that's a great thing. We need to draw towards a close, Denise. We've, as always happens when I do these interviews, I sit here listening to the fascinating things that people have to say, and I never look at my watch. So let's just wrap up by going away from geo for a moment. You know, I always like to just get a little bit of personal stuff into these interviews. So when you're not running the benchmark initiative, uh, chairing the AGI and all the other things that you do, and we haven't even talked about women in geospatial this afternoon, that'll have to be another conversation for another time. What do you do that's not geo? That's not geo. So certainly when I was in OGC, very little that wasn't geo because I never seemed to have any time to do that. One of the, the glorious things actually out of being in, put into force lockdown is that I have rediscovered a passion for gardening. So if you could see my, my yard at the moment, I have got so many different types of vegetables and fruits growing outside at the moment. Um, right. But it's also allowed me to, to reawaken some skills that I used to have around uh, painting and also playing piano are probably my three Fant passion areas at the moment. Fantastic. It's interesting how many of us, admittedly those of us who are fortunate enough to have gardens, have rediscovered an interest in growing vegetables. My wife and I have dug up half the garden and have a medium-sized vegetable patch going now and every morning I go out to inspect the uh, the courgettes and the tomato plants and the beans to see how they're doing and it's it is great you know and so I know exactly what you mean. Denise how can people get in touch with you what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? So to get in touch with me I mean look the, one of the easiest ways is if you're on Twitter go and find me on Twitter at Spatial Red. So Why Spatial Red? Why, Why special red? red? Oh, I, I always, I always mean to ask this question, <laughs> and 
I mean, people, you know, I've got an easy Twitter handle. You know, I mean, Stephen Feldman is pretty obvious. Why Spatial yep. Red? Why Spatial Red? Do you know, that's almost a whole nother conversation, Stephen. Okay. Um, it's from, oh, goodness, almost 13, 14 years ago now. It is the direct result of a geospatial conference. And it has some connection to the fact that I was wearing red at this conference. But as to the rest of the story, it's all in urban legend. Uh, right. So I will uh, have to leave leave you all there wondering with that. Okay. One. It's okay. stuck. It's stuck over okay. the years. And to be fair, I typically do wear red a lot. You do indeed. I was just thinking I have seen you standing on a conference platform giving a talk and you were definitely spatial red. Yeah. Well, and there's, so there's, there is a bit of business reason in the back of that. And it came out of a mentoring suggestion from one of my mentor, female mentors. And she pointed out that Typically, when we walked into technology conferences, there was a sea of lovely men in black or grey suits. So to help us stand out further, she's like, we should always, we should not dress in black. She was saying women should help to make themselves stand out in these situations by being a bit more colourful. So mm. I guess my colour I chose was red and it is somewhat stuck over the years. Well, and it's... And why not? Why not? I mean, spatial black would be pretty dull. Spatial yep. grey would be even duller. I like spatial red. Denise McKenzie, thank you so, so much for a fascinating talk. I look forward to hearing about the Locus code when it's published and also seeing the progress of the AGI. Denise, thank you very much indeed. No worries. Thanks very much, Stephen. Appreciate it. Take care. You too. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today and listening to the GMOP podcast. Hopefully you've enjoyed the discussion. Please don't hesitate if you have any feedback for us or any suggestions for topics that we should cover in the future. You can get the show notes over on the website, which is at thegeomob.com. While you're there, if you're not yet on the mailing list, please do get on the mailing list where we once a month send out an email announcing future events, summarizing past events, and just generally sharing uh, events that you may find of interest. You can also, of course, follow us on Twitter, where our handle is geomob. You can follow Steven at Steven Feldman. You can follow me at Fryfogel. You can check out Mappery at mappery.org. And of course, if you need any geocoding, please check out my service, which is opencagedata.com. We look forward to you joining us again at a future episode, and of course, seeing you at a future GeoMop event. Hope to see you there soon. Bye.